Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Jordan. I am an instructor at McMaster University, where I teach classes in the history of science. And today, I'm very excited to be speaking with David Kaiser, the author of Quantum Legacies. Enjoy. I am here with David Kaiser who is a truly unique scholar. He is a professor of both the history of science and an active physics researcher at MIT. As a historian, he studies mostly 20th century physics, and in particular the history of quantum mechanics, Feynman diagrams, physics in the counterculture era, and much more. As a physicist, he studies mainly particle physics and theories of cosmology, focusing on the early expansion of the universe. David's work first came to my attention with the publication of How the Hippies Saved Physics, which I admired for its ability to meld very serious ideas about the philosophy of quantum mechanics with very silly ideas about hippies and other people you might not expect to to have made legitimate contributions to physics. As a person myself who is very interested in both physics and its history, I consider David Kaiser to be a truly incredible ambassador for these ideas. Today, we will be speaking about Dave's new book, Quantum Legacies. It's a collection of essays, many of them adapted from magazine and newspaper articles he's penned over the years. David Kaiser, thank you so much for speaking with me and the New Books Network. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really just delighted to talk with you about it, and I'm I'm glad to to chat. Wonderful. All right, let's get right into it. I'd like to start uh, by asking about the title of the book, Quantum Legacies. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I guess I was trying to invoke with with this notion of legacies that our our present day research, our preoccupations with some amazing questions and research and instruments that we get to work with, even in, in the very hyper you know, present moment, that these, of course, are not coming from nowhere. That they are embedded. They have a kind of history, and they they they're part of a of a multi generational. Uh, you know, kind of large, extended, worldwide community of effort, and so we're kind of the inheritors today of of a series of twists and turns that brought us to to even pose the kinds of questions that we ask today. And so, one of the questions that has really fascinated me as an historian f- for for a long time—it's animated each of my earlier books as well—is how do we create this strange creature called the physicist? Um, what physicists aren't born, right? We're we're sort of made. We make them actively. And we make them actively in particular kinds of institutions. Those change over time and across different places. We prioritize different kinds of things. We want a physicist to be able to do this or that more so than other things. And those decisions change over time. So the legacies is both about the kind of uh, the, the, the ideas in which we get uh, to sort of swim and try to contribute toward, but also that this is a, a kind of multi-generational communal effort and like anyone, you know, enjoying a kind of inheritance from the past, we're 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 
necessarily kind of making making our way in the world today uh, based on on how we got to where we are. And so I thought the, the notion of legacies stretching us, connecting us across generations really tried to kind of uh, to bring that point across. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think the physics community is in many ways very unique as a, just as a community of scholars and as a community of people in general. And I'm excited to kind of dig into maybe why uh, that is the case and some of the eccentricities uh, of that particular community. This this book is, like I said, a collection of essays, and there are so many fascinating stories from so many different eras of physics. We can only touch on a couple in this interview, uh, but I'd like to start by maybe asking, what was it about specifically the turn of the 20th century that made physics so ripe for revolution and excitement with the advent of relativity and quantum mechanics? Well, that's really interesting. I guess any answer we give now might just w- runs the risk of being a, a kind of just so story since we know how things happened afterwards. So we, so beware of whatever answer I might cook up right now. It's, it's a fascinating question. But I do know, based on the work of, of other colleagues, of scholars, you know, historians have looked very carefully at this for, for quite some time, that physics around the year 1900, give or take, really was going through a pretty um, interesting set of changes, not just intellectually, that those, those changes we, we many of us know about, and it's super fun to, to talk about and to dig more into them. But there were pretty significant institutional changes as well, that in a sense, 1900, we might think, give or take, was a kind of tipping point, that there had been a kind of investment, a seriousness uh, in, the, in, in the institutions of physics research and training uh, from the previous small number of decades. It's really the mid to late 19th century where we see something like the profession of physics uh, kind of t- taking, taking the shape that we would recognize today, where people aren't just kind of gentlemanly amateurs, they're not independently wealthy scholars who do this on the side, or at least not only that. But now there's an actual profession, there's a career path that one could be trained toward and, and have something like a, a, a job expectation, a career that one could make. And so you have, in some sense, a, a kind of critical mass of people working in that area uh, of institutions or many, many parts of the world that are supporting that kind of work, that there are, there's a kind of stability and a, a community structure that's starting to really become recognizable. And then on top of that, you have, you know, some, some uh, really quite remarkable contributors. So I want to I want to zoom out by saying it's not just because we had some some uh, terrifically far-sighted, you know, 26-year-old patent clerk named mm-hmm. Albert Einstein. That mm-hmm. that is true and that was important. But I think we want to we want to pay attention to the fact that he was not Einstein in this instance or the young architects of quantum theory were were not only not working in a vacuum, they were working in a very specific kind of place or series of places in a role that had just begun to congeal uh, in in really in in their lifetimes or just before their lifetimes. So the 1900, we have a I think it's a kind of critical mass tipping point where a bunch of these things come together and are, are in the right place. I think that definitely one of the certainly the most pernicious misunderstanding of how physics and indeed all of science works is that it's all you know lone geniuses working in in solitary by the blackboard. That certainly isn't the case. But even another. Um, maybe misunderstanding of how physics works is that someone proposes a theory, another person tries it out and checks it, and then it's accepted, and mm-hmm. then that's physics, you know. And 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 then and then ad infinitum, we just kind of keep proposing true theories that that get better and better. Uh, in reality, and this is something your book does a phenomenal job of 
highlighting, it's much more complex. There's ego, infighting, factions, you know, um, anti-Semitism, racism, so many reasons why uh, it's a much more turbulent process uh, than than merely proposing and accepting theories. I'd love to um, talk specifically about a couple of examples, uh, in particular quantum mechanics and special relativity. Um, if we start with quantum mechanics, um, it was as a theory derided by some, not believed, very controversial. I, I know that it was called in in Germany Knaben physics, the kids' physics, because all the people you know who were proposing it were were also young. Why was quantum mechanics so controversial? And what did it take for it to actually become embedded in the physics community as a legitimate theory? It's a, that's a great series of, uh, of, of questions to, to chew on together. It's, um, I should say, let me just back up and say, I, 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 I love quantum theory and I love it's just remarkably rich and juicy history. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's again, it's a kind of inheritance or a legacy that so many people around the world, uh, uh, get to get to kind of explore and try to further advance today but it has i think a particularly juicy or or maybe unexpected uh history and so you're right first of all not all the architects but many of the architects whose names we still rightly remember and celebrate were contributing to this body of work in their early 20s not even their late 20s <laughs> at an age <laughs> when i was certainly was not doing anything of of, of the kind myself uh and so the the kind of the the stereotype or the image of this was sort of the new hot thing mm-hmm. um you know had had something going for it. there were plenty of 40 year olds contributing and contributing very important ways uh but also i think even more astonishingly people who were very very young by any possible measure so the notion that this was the kind of the new hot stuff i think really was felt at the time I think many people at the time uh, who were cognizant of that thought this was a revolution in real time. There was a sense of excitement in many corners, uh, not just retrospectively because we knew we know how it turned out. But I think, you know, reading uh, accounts from from some of that early generation uh, that they spoke as if they they had an inkling that something unusual, something special was happening. So there was a kind of a buzz about it, uh, even at, at early times. Now, what made it you know uh, why? What what accounts for the what I keep calling the juiciness or the unexpected kind of twists and turns in that story? Part of it is as as so many people will know to this day that as the material was coming together, it it seemed to on the one hand match experience and experiments remarkably well, and yet it seemed to depart from what we might consider common sense, let alone well established uh, uh, principles of of uh, physics. That had come before, it seemed to really be, a, I see, I call it a series of insults to our intuition. It just didn't seem to add up, to square with either kind of time tested, battle tested ideas in a very formal development of physics, or even how we th- think the world works when we go about our, our kind of everyday lives. And so that combination where it seemed to just win time after time, if by win we mean uh, could people compare expectations from this still emerging body of work, compare that with increasingly careful and precise experiments. And lo and behold, it seemed to, to explain a whole host of things that had, that had really puzzled people for, people for quite some time. That's a series of wins that, that, that encourages others to start paying attention. On the other hand, once they did start paying attention, more and more people started finding that this just didn't seem to add up in a kind of conceptual way, or at least it, it, 
or what it added up to didn't seem to square with what people might have expected. That made some people famously very, very uncomfortable and even upset. It literally led to shouting matches and name calling. I mean, it's some of these, the letters that have been preserved and there's tens of thousands of letters from that early generation that have been uh, kind of lovingly uh, preserved and translated and, and, and cross-referenced and all the rest and published. You, you can see them really kind of yelling at each other or, or teasing, you know, people behind their back or this person says this, but everyone knows that's just garbage. It makes me want to vomit. I mean, these are things you read in these letters. And so there was, it was, it was sort of a high emotional drama, not for everyone, but with moments of that, it was leading to kind of scintillating developments in laboratories and on scratch pads. And yet it also led to an awful lot of head scratching. And you put all that together uh, in, a, in, a, in what happens to, again, as we now know, uh, uh, to be a very dramatic point, point in European history and in broader world history. Uh, and you really get a, a recipe for just a lot of moving parts, a lot of interesting aspects to the early history of quantum theory. One thing that maybe for those listeners who are not phys- physicists or have never been physicists or have never taken a course in physics, maybe we can speak a little bit about why why this process is in fact more complicated than simply our goal is to explain the structure of the spectral lines of hydrogen, for instance. And so we propose a mathematical theory and maybe it involves some matrices and maybe matrices are new, so that's fine. Or it involves some new type of uh, equation with a strange uh, new function called a wave function, but that's fine. You propose the theory and it fits the data. Why is that why is that leading then to letters where people are saying that they want to vomit? <laughs> yes, that's a fair, fair question. A, a couple of reasons. Number one, many, many of these folks, not all of them, but many of the folks in that, in that uh, generation had a, a very lofty goal, not just to make sense of the, of the spectral lines of hydrogen, as challenging as that uh, seemed to be for some time, but really to, to develop what they, what they themselves called a worldview. This shouldn't just be one bag of tricks that explains this set of phenomena, and we would have an entirely separate, maybe incompatible bag of tricks to explain other things. They wanted to have, you know, one bag. They wanted to have one kind of unified, many of them did, one unified conceptual worldview where you would start with the minimum ingredients uh, possible and then turn the crank and explain at least according to their ambition, literally everything in the universe, right? And that's a that's a different kind of goal than saying. This lab across town found some pretty interesting data points, and I bet I could, you know, kind of fit those with some mathematical expressions. So, so the stakes for many of them seemed pretty high. This was not just uh, could I figure out one or two isolated uh, sort of experimental facts, but could could I put this together to a picture of how the world seems to work at a very deep or fundamental level? That's an ambitious goal. Then you couple that with the notion that a lot of the the upshot of these of these successful uh, mathematical expressions suggests things that seem to depart more and more, again, from our common sense, our intuition, from other prevailing successful theories of physics, and, and it really raises the stakes. So famous examples that I'm sure many listeners will, will already know very well, there is this notion uh, that Erwin Schrödinger introduces, uh, that we now call Schrödinger's cat, uh, which he actually introduced because of his, his accumulated frustration with the very equations he had done so much to invent. So Schrodinger was not inventing Schrodinger's cat to help further popularize his own work. He invented it because by that point, he was really troubled by his own work and, and the work of other colleagues. This notion that 
if you if you take Schrodinger's own equation uh, seriously or somehow at face value, that when we look at matter at the scale of atoms or parts of atoms, not you know uh, people or automobiles or baseballs, but little little bits of matter, uh, then they seem to be able to be in two opposite or contradictory states at exactly the same time. So it's not just that it could be one way at one moment and a different way the next, but somehow at the same time, these systems could have kind of equal and opposite properties. And that just made Schrodinger think maybe maybe the whole edifice has gone off the rails rather than isn't this exciting, let's learn more. <laughs> so that's one example. The uh, particles seem to be able to tunnel through solid walls. So they would have some probability to get from A to B uh, while sort of hopping through a forbidden intermediate space. Uh, the world seemed to be governed by these, according to these equations, merely by probabilities that it no longer seemed possible to say uh, B will necessarily follow A. Rather, B has a likelihood to follow A. And again, that's an enormous break from this highly successful, highly polished conceptual edifice uh, of either Isaac Newton or James Clark Maxwell or, or all the intervening um, you know, leading lights that had come. So there are a lot of these kind of consequences of the equations uh, that start to, to, to give at least growing numbers of people some real pause, even as uh, the working out the kind of mathematical predictions from that set of equations seems to match, you know, even in, in the 1920s and 30s, was matching each clever experimental test to which they could be put. Yeah, and the book contains um, a really wonderful essay specifically on the topic of the Schrodinger's cat uh, thought experiment and how maybe the popular conception that we, as we understand it, um, is not really what it was initially, certainly in Schrodinger as he was figuring it out in a series of letters to Einstein that you that you profile really wonderfully. I'm reminded in that answer of um, the Solvay conferences, which were these... Um, occasions where the where the physics community would gather and try to hash out a lot of the questions that you were um, just describing. Many people will be familiar with the famous photo from the 1927 uh, Solvay conference where you can see in the front row um, Einstein and Lorentz and Marie Curie and, and Niels Bohr and Max Planck. And then in the back, you see, you know, the new kids uh, in mm -hmm. town, your uh, Heisenberg and uh, Dirac. What? What, what is the role and the significance of events like this where the physics community can kind of gather and, and sort through these issues? And what were some of the, maybe you can speak about the Einstein-Bohr debates that took place or in general, yeah, what was, what was worked out when the physics community was actually able to gather in person and, and kind of sort these, these issues out in person? So one of the things that, that I think really is pretty pretty remarkable when we look back to the 1920s and, and into the 1930s, uh, this this period of real kind of conceptual innovation as well as institutional change uh, for physics and for so much else, that the the number of people who are working really squarely on this new material on on quantum theory, that number was still pretty small. It was more than two dozen, but probably fewer than a hundred. Uh, of people who are active, which and what that meant was, if you had a conference uh, funded by a, a, a wealthy private industrialist, in this case uh, Ernest Solvay, and you invited two dozen people to spend a week together, you, you would have a pretty substantial fraction of all the experts in the universe, right, in the known universe, who, who had been thinking hard uh, and carefully about that that topic. 
that's what begins not to be true in later years with when the field grows by leaps and bounds. But let's pause just in that, say, that 1927 meeting that you mentioned, the very famous meeting in the whole series, that it wasn't that every single kind of relevant thinker was there, but but an awful large proportion of them were. That, and that underscores that they, they largely knew each other, that they would meet uh, with regularity. Most of them lived relatively close, meaning within kind of Western Europe, not in the same cities, but connected by railways, certainly connected by uh, by overnight post and so on. So we have that's why we have all these letters and all these kind of rich daily interactions or nearly daily with which we can, we can try to reconstruct uh, their ideas, their, their relationships, their, their changing situation. So so one of the things that one could do is is you, you know, instead of only relying on separate kind of sidebar conversations carried out by letters, you could have 20 or 25 people uh, not just working together during the day, but staying in the same hotel, having their meals together, going for walks outside together, and kind of returning to some sticking points or some some real, uh, you know, um, parts where many people felt stuck or many people were confident they had the right answer, but all their answers disagreed, either of those situations, and really have the kind of in, informal face-to-face time to try to to work through some of it. They didn't solve every open question in those meetings, of course, but there was a kind of informality and and uh, a, a fluidity to the discussions because they already knew each other because they were literally breaking bread together uh, and and talking kind of breathing this topic over the over a very intense week at a time uh, and and so that we we know there were very uh, productive discussions that came out often the discussions weren't hey look we solved it I was rather sharpening the 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 real sticking points. So rather than saying that person A finally convinced person B, what we what what often came out of these was that person B now understand the real crux that was bothering person A so much. It would help sharpen the points of disagreement or debate or or confusion and uncertainty. It it did these meetings didn't always lead to a, a rapid consensus, but it certainly moved the discussion forward by saying, "Oh, that's what you what really what you've been talking about in these letters or in that article I read in the Zeitschrift for Physique from last month. Hmm. So I think there's, there's, there's that level of a kind of clarity of what the other interlocutors were really bothered by or what was really up, up, uh, uh, keeping them up at night. And so uh, one of the most uh, kind of famous examples of that is when you mentioned the Einstein board debate, uh, which was really carried out over many years, but including these kind of touch points at these Solvay conferences or similar in-person meetings carried out often by letter in between with the occasional more formal address at a conference or kind of keynote lecture that would be published in, and written up in a more more formal publication form. So Einstein and Bohr were, they knew each other reasonably well. They were rough contemporaries. Bohr was a couple of years younger, but they were closer in age to each other than to the real young guns like the Heisenbergs or Wolfgang Pauli's of, of the day or Paul Dirac. So they were peers and contemporaries. They had, from from what many historians have reconstructed from their from their correspondence, from Einstein's and Bohr's correspondence, they, they seem to have a, a real affection for each other. There was a real admiration for each other, even though they became kind of lifelong debate partners uh, or debate. I wouldn't say antagonists. They they just didn't agree on some very very core sets of ideas, and they had a kind of model of respectful extended debate and discussion as opposed to. The younger folks who would start talking behind each other's back and, <laughs> and teasing them. So, so the Einstein board debate stands out in our historical memory, partly because the ideas they really were getting at some, not all, but many of the of this conceptual 
sticking points that still animate a great deal of work in the history and philosophy of quantum theory. How, what do the equations seem to tell us about the world even to this day? And also because it was a kind of friendly, generous, intellectually open kind of exchange that didn't happen once or twice, but over the course of, of uh, well, more than 20 years, maybe a quarter century. So I think it, it stands out for the for the 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 the, the passions, the, the sense that each of them had that there are real conceptual stakes, but also that it was a kind of, you know, frankly, kind of genteel kind of discussion. Uh, and and it and it often played out in these in these kind of witty face-to-face settings. So that at, for example, at these Solvay conferences, you know, uh, the the stories were that Einstein would would pose a challenge sometimes, say, either at breakfast or at dinner, depending on which account you read, but at some meal, <laughs> punctuating meal. And it would he would it would totally stymie Niels Bohr. <laughs> By this point, Einstein had become a very, very concerned skeptic or critic of, of quantum theory. Uh, and Bohr was really seen as the main kind of spokesperson, uh, kind of in the main proponent for, for the direction quantum mechanics had been taking. So Einstein would kind of parry with some very, very clever involved thought experiment. But, you know, if what you say is true, then what about this or what about that? And Bohr would temporarily look kind of stunned or, 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 or dazed. And he would just chew on it and mumble and go for walks in the gardens with his young, you know, kind of postdocs uh, like uh, Heisenberg and Pauli. And then by the next meal, if it was posed at breakfast, then by dinner, Bohr would solve it. It was posed at dinner, then Bohr would stay up all night and, and reveal a response by breakfast. But you get the idea. And you would do this. They would do that sort of day after day because they were staying in the same hotel, going to the same conference during the day. And there was a kind of rapidity of that back and forth. Uh, which out of which came some of these enduring kind of conceptual puzzles or favorite thought experiments that we still uh, introduce to our to our students to this day. So there was a, a kind of a playfulness uh, and a kind of uh, civility to it, even though both sides thought you know they're they're fighting to understand the universe as a whole. That's fascinating. I think one of the one of the main things that I certainly have taken uh, in studying in graduate school, the history of science, and of course, in reading books like yours. And in particular, this book is really appreciating how much of what we call science, or in this case, what we call physics, is not in the published literature. You know, the published literature is kind of this cleaned up, very pristine, end of the road version of what really underneath exists in thousands of letters and in-person conversations and meetings and conferences that cumulatively and 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 for that matter in textbooks and 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 teaching which we'll talk about later that factors a huge part in your book um what happens in the classrooms and the meetings all of that is you know is is such an integral part of physics and you really can't get that just in reading you know what happens at the end of the road in the literature I, I agree. And of course, that's part of what is so fun uh, to be an historian, I, I think. I read a little bit about that in, in the very introduction to the, to the book. But, you know, I was hooked on this as a kind of detective story. Uh, mm-hmm. As an undergraduate, I was very lucky to get the opportunity to go spend some time in the um, special collections at Princeton University, which among many, many, you know, riches, they have um, one one set. There are actually a few duplicate sets, but they have one set of, of Albert Einstein's uh, correspondence, you know, a hundred boxes of many, many thousands of letters per box. It's an enormous collection. The originals are housed uh, mostly at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Einstein had arranged, or his executors had arranged soon after he died. Uh, there's uh, an entire international team still pouring over these, making publishing a critical 
edition based at Caltech that's doing just ex- extraordinary work. And then another a, a copy, a kind of a clean set of these are also housed in Princeton. So I went down to Princeton uh, in the early 90s and, and just kind of dipped a toe into this ex- extensive collection to start seeing you know, some of this, the feature of just as you described, that there, there are people exchanging letters. The letters you know, will, will cover news of the day and, you know, their personal lives and their hopes and dreams and fears. Uh, increasingly, of course, in this period, there, there are very significant concerns about the state of the world with, with the, the, the looming clouds of fascism and soon open fighting during the war. Uh, and, and they're also just going, going, as hard as they can to understand these equations and what they might might mean. Another thing that that that, that this kind of broader document base helps re- really reinforce is that, e- as you said earlier, even these kind of rightly celebrated um, standout contributors like Einstein or Heisenberg or Schrodinger, that they were really thoroughly enmeshed in the community even in their own day. They were not solo agents. They were not uh, lonesome titans on a mountaintop. They were they were working things out in conversation. Now the circles of of those who were invited to converse has grown and grown over time. But even in their day, when the community was still relatively small, it wasn't one or two. It was a, a social phenomenon mm. uh, it, it enabled by certain kinds of institutions, certain research centers or universities, enabled by a certain kind, literally, of a postal system that they could rely upon, uh, and enabled by these kinds of uh, conferences and, and the rail and all the rest. So they were, they were interacting in multiple registers. And if we only read their kind of polished scientific articles in the literature, we will get a, 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 a version of that story, but really a pretty, a pretty weak version, a pretty attenuated one. And another thing that's fun as an historian about this time period is, that, you know, paper was cheap and the post, you know, mailing letters was incredibly cheap and efficient and, uh, and lots of letters were saved. And so the historian really can go to these, you know, rare books, uh, collections at various uh, universities and so on. And just go through the mail. I, another colleague once joked that the historian's job is to read dead is to read dead people's mail, and there's something that's a bit that's a bit dark, but there's something to it that we're kind of trying to reconstruct from all the scraps of evidence that we can gather. Uh, you know, the kind of hopes, dreams, experiences, and 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 fears of previous generations. And when it comes to the the history of relativity, of quantum theory, of much of the nuclear physics that would come after. We have a remarkable range of these sources on which to draw, um, partly because people wrote stuff down. They were not making extensive use of, you know, telegram, let alone soon to come telephone or email. Uh, and so we have a, a kind of informal quasi-daily record uh, that that we get to work with and really be, beat our own heads against. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's, it's, it's one thing I equally enjoyed about your book is that, and we won't really touch on this in this interview, so... Uh, the listeners will have to uh, purchase the book to, to find this part. But you speak so much about um, your own experiences uh, in physics, some of the experiments that you've conducted with your research group recently. And it's it's I love that the the way that it kind of feels like an evolving conversation that you are taking on the one hand, your historical research, looking at this you know, quantum mechanics of the past and then contributing in your own way to uh, to the way that field is, is moving into the future. So it's kind of, you know, the, con- the continuation of the quantum legacy, if I may. Um, I'd like to stay on uh, Einstein for a moment and speak a bit about um, his theories of special and general relativity. 
Uh, famously, special relativity was proposed in uh, 1905. Einstein's uh, Annus what, 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 what is the expression I'm trying to get <laughs> Maybe We can just go with miracle year. That's right. Miracle yeah, year. That's let's, right. Yes, let's shy away from Latin. Um, right. And then he spent the next decade working on uh, general relativity. But one, um, it's these subjects were not really taught, it seems, in uh, universities or schools, let alone um, textbooks written about them for, for decades thereafter. Moreover, Einstein uh, being Jewish and fleeing uh, Germany during the rise of the Nazis and fascism meant that the reaction to his own work was not uh, necessarily so pleasant in his own country. I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about some of the reactions to uh, general relativity, in particular among people who weren't even physicists at all. So one wonders why they would care so much. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's a it's a great topic. I'm I'm very very slowly, exceedingly slowly, working on a, really a whole book about that topic. So so cut me off when I, <laughs> when hour nine of this interview has expired. Please just tell me to stop because sure. there's tons and tons to to say about that. But you but you're right. I mean, um, special relativity was certainly um, recognized not decades and decades later, meaning sooner than that, but it was, you know, we could say a solid decade um, before anything like a kind of um, broadly shared notion that this was important and original started to sink in. The first reaction to Einstein's special relativity was no reaction at all. Uh, this was, at the time, he really was an unknown patent clerk, not in the main institutions, which by that point had sprung up to support this kind of work. Uh, he was not really part of the club, so to speak. He, he had some connections, but he wasn't squarely in it. He was, um, you know, really pursuing a different a different approach to what by that point were quite longstanding questions. People agreed the questions were essential, but his approach to them seemed really um, at odds or just from out of left field. Uh, and so reaction one was no reaction. Reaction two was, oh, yes, that's a clever kind of trivial re-derivation of equations that the great uh, Hendrik Lorentz had already found and others, but especially Lorentz. And that that made Einstein even more upset than people ignoring him. He said, don't you realize my equation looks just like Lorentz's, which Lorentz had derived is roughly 15 years earlier, um, or 13 years earlier. But the but what but what I say that equation means is totally different. And that that kind of distinction was was usually lost on on the immediate circle who even noticed at all. It was usually called the Lorentz Einstein theory, if Einstein was given credit at all. And again, that was not uh, to Einstein's liking either. Uh, and then, you know, gradually, meaning over the course of roughly a decade, a few uh, more influential, you know, better placed people, sometimes in conversation with Einstein, began to appreciate that this wasn't just rederiving what had previously been done. This was, in fact, interesting and significant. And they began the work of writing review articles and even some early textbooks. That didn't guarantee it would be taken up right away either. But that really became a kind of the next stage, a kind of necessary next step for this to become more broadly um, kind of a part of the discussion. So that by you know 1915, uh, when Einstein was wrapping up what, what we come to call the general theory of relativity, there was a, a pretty widespread uh, if it may be sometimes grudging respect for special relativity. For general relativity, it was an even longer haul um, because the mathematics was, on the one hand, more involved than was typical for most physicists of the time. In fact, Einstein himself had famously cut most of his own uh, mathematics classes as a student. He, he got through on the kindness of his friends, both his girlfriend at the time, who became his first wife, Maleva Marich, who took very good notes and also 
Marcel Grossman, who was a, 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 an undergraduate buddy of his who went on to an extremely distinguished career in, as a pure mathematician. So Einstein was, was not getting the math that he, in some sense, should have been as a student and came to really regret that later in his career when he realized, oh, actually, I really do need a much more sophisticated uh, uh, geometrical approach to understand the questions that he was after, what became the general theory of relativity. Uh, and so there was, on the one hand, a kind of, this looked even more strange and literally foreign. It was in a different way of, of, of trying to parse how the world seemed to work for, uh, compared to the, the, the common ways of, of uh, handling, say, Newton's equations or, uh, or, or Maxwell's. Um, it was compounded by the sort of gathering clouds of war. The First World War was enormously disruptive, uh, even for the kind of informal communication habits that we talked about earlier. Uh, there simply could be no letters exchanged, for example, between Cambridge, England and Berlin uh, once the blockade had started. Uh, Einstein could travel to some places as a German civil servant. By this point, he was uh, a member of the Prussian Academy of Sciences. He'd long since left the patent office behind. But once war broke out, he was literally a, 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 a German employee of, of the government. And once there was war, he couldn't just go to some places and he could go to others if the, if the countries were still neutral. Anyway, the, the, the routines of interacting with colleagues were enormously impacted by the, by the very dramatic developments of the First World War. Uh, and, and you compound that with the kind of strangeness of the equations and also the conceptual leaps that he had made on his own during a, a decade of struggle with a small circle of colleagues and interlocutors, but he hadn't brought the others along for the ride. And so it really started sounding very strange. Uh, what do you mean there's no force of gravity? Newton taught us there's a force of gravity. Physics is all about the, the interplay of forces, many would have said. Mm -hmm. uh, and Einstein was, was saying that, no, actually, the phenomena we describe as gravitation, uh, the apple falling from the tree or the moon falling around the earth, those really are effects of geometry, of a warping of space and time. And that was a pretty big conceptual leap. The mathematics to hash that out were also um, you know, a, a, a pretty big step. So there was a lot of things kind of conspiring to make this a pretty hard sell. Uh, now, there was a very dramatic uh, uh, early test of this, of some of these ideas, the, the famous eclipse expedition of just over 100 years ago, uh, the results of which were announced in November of 1919. So we just passed the 100th anniversary of that a few months ago. That directed enormous worldwide attention onto Einstein and his ideas, that's really what made Einstein the worldwide celebrity that we would recognize today, it, it, even more so than, than other things from his career. It was this dramatic announcement that, uh, as the New York Times said in this famous headline, stars not where they appeared to be, but nobody need worry, was, was part of the New York Times headline, that, that hmm. space seemed to be as wobbly as a trampoline. And that the path of starlight could be bent as if, uh, as if space and time were a kind of fabric that could be uh, distended from some basic shape. So that was pretty, pretty heady stuff. And that led to, a, again, a remarkable, very quick reaction. Not just was Einstein a worldwide celebrity, he was now a worldwide target. And this comes again back, we're immediately thrust back into the, the worldliness of, of Europe uh, in the years right after the First World War the gathering storms of what would become the Nazi movement. Uh, some of the earliest far-right uh, rallies and efforts uh, were starting already by 1920, let alone 1933 when the Nazis took over Germany. And one of the earliest things that, that happened with some of these groups was they would rent out uh, both uh, opera houses, music halls, and also sporting arenas throughout Germany 
to host anti-relativity rallies, not just down with Einstein, this <laughs> outspoken pacifist, socialist, internationalist Jew who had said things about how he was against the war for the First World War. That was not going to make him beloved by these groups. That was overdetermined. They didn't say down with Einstein. They said down with warping space-time, that relativity was somehow un-Aryan. It was, it was as they described it, kind of uh, conceptually um, disgusting. It w- went against uh, a kind of appropriate way of reasoning about the world. And to them, appropriate meant reasoning according to a racially pure thinker in, in, their, in their framing. So they would have these enormous rallies to, to denounce relativity. And it was, I mean, again, what, what that often meant was it was a kind of recruiting tool for a far-right movement. It was not really a scientific debate. It was a kind of easy target to get in the press because Einstein was still so much in the press. So you have this kind of blurring of what debates are, are so to speak, scientific, what debates are merely a kind of grotesque political opportunism, and what's on that spectrum in between. At these rallies, for example, and other historians have written a great deal about this. This is, you know, well-known material now, thanks to the work of many other uh, historians and other scholars. Some of the kind of public faces of this anti-relativity movement uh, throughout the 1920s and beyond, you couldn't just laugh them off. Several, two of them in particular, had already received the Nobel Prize in physics. These were not kind of, you know, newcomers to the to the formal study of of, of physics. They weren't theoretical physicists, they were experimentalists, but they were at the top of the world game uh, in their fields. So you have this kind of blurring of kind of, we might say, know-nothing naysayers combined with some Nobel laureates who harbor conceptual and, as it turns out, kind of um, politically, racially motivated animus. Uh, and you have this whole spectrum of that, that just reveals you know, p- part of what it is to be, you know, humans in, in unusual times. This is, this, is, this is what it means to, to put the, the scientific work back into the world in which it's unfolding. Uh, because Einstein, again, in his voluminous letters, of which we have so many thousands, he's joking with colleagues that, you know, uh, these, these dummies, you know, said another series of stupid things. He's not worried. He'll be fine. His very dear friend uh, is assassinated, and that changes his tune briefly. Other friends urge him to leave. He's sort of mocking the, the movement. He's still debating with colleagues about quantum theory. He's arguing with his first wife. I mean, this is just, this is what we get from reading just that one person's letters with mm. care. And you, and you widen the circle beyond that one individual, and you see just the kind of fleshiness, the unavoidable humanness of, of this enterprise to try to figure out how the world works. Yeah, that, I mean, it's absolutely incredible uh, just to see you know, the politicization of, of something that we now would think could not possibly be further from politicization, namely g- the theory of general relativity. It's really fascinating. And in, in some way, I'm reminded as you were speaking of this, you know, the, the, the marriage between the Nobel laureates and, and the, the, the know-nothings, it's kind of um, some of this climate change denial stuff. All it takes is like a few people with PhDs to to be the talking head on one side and then people can really... Uh, get behind that as a, as a movement, but it's fascinating to see that with something that we would perceive as, you know, unequivocally objective, like physics can have the exact same, uh, phenomenon happen to it. What a, yeah. Um, well, I'm looking forward to, uh, to the, to the, to the book length, uh, version of, of, of that story, because that's absolutely fascinating. Well, yeah, thank no, like I say, it's, it's, it's been a fascinating project. And, and, and for the book, I, I do carry the story much more forward uh, in time. So it'll, it'll come up into the very late 20th century. There are, the, the episodes don't stop with 1919 or 1933. 
and and that's what I find fascinating. It's not always the the kind of um, barbarism or brutality of of, of these kind of uh, ridiculous uh, proto-Nazi rallies, but the the enmeshing, the the embedding of this work that seems literally otherworldly uh, in a in a in the here and now. That's unavoidable, right? That's because science is done by people in times and places. Uh, and so whether it's decisions about whether to invest in sa- in certain kinds of satellites or who has access to certain classified information or who can use these newfangled things called programmable electronic computers, those were once a new thing, all these questions about sort of access and resources and priorities, those are questions about politics and institutions as much as they are or as much as they have an impact on on our, our understanding of the warping of space and time. So the book is really trying to, to get at that kind of uh, unavoidable embedding of of the of the human scientific inquiry in these broader in these broader broader human worlds. Brilliant. Well this this book uh, Quantum Legacies that we are talking about now uh, so much of it is about uh, bo- other books in particular textbooks um, you speak about you have a chapter on uh, that, that harkens back to your previous book, How the Hippie Saved Physics, about this book, The Tao of Physics. Um, uh, and you you have a wonderful chapter on the textbook uh, Gravitation um, by um, Meisner, Thorne, and Wheeler, often known as just MTW. This is mm-hmm. a, you know, door-stopping, uh, bookshelf-toppling, like, thousand-page volume uh, that 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 you recall, you know, the the aches in one's back from carrying it around in your, in your backpack all day. I'm, I'd love to hear what uh, inspires your fascination in particular with textbooks. And maybe if you feel that physicists have a particularly or unusually strong affinity with textbooks, that has certainly been my experience as a student of physics. Maybe this is something you've remarked upon and maybe you can explain if you agree why that might be the case. Yeah, I, I I am fascinated by textbooks. I'm fascinated by by publishing in general. Let's say by the history of publishing, um, whether that's about uh, peer review or traditions for authorship or uh, you know journal structures. As again, many of my friends and colleagues throughout the history of science have, have done really fascinating work on that. Uh, and and textbooks are you know also present to us these moments in time where people work super hard to try to kind of smuggle into the future a particular set of skills or insights or ways of doing things. Now, we all know, every person who's ever read a book, let alone people who've written them, people know that what people will make of the words in a book um, might not always match up what the authors had hoped or intended or expected. So the, so the books become these fascinating creatures because they're, they're, they're not exactly a baton in a relay race. They're kind of more malleable, or at least the meanings that people will, will, will craft from them are really can be pretty broad. Even, even for a book like a textbook where the authors are trying to be, you know, often trying to be very precise or have a very specific um, ambition in mind for what they hope the readers will take away. So you have this kind of constant, uh, uh, again, a kind of not exactly a tug of war, but a constant uh, back and forth between what we might consider a kind of author's intentions and the reader's construal. And now you have a textbook where you have many types of readers in very particular kinds of settings who nonetheless are going to encounter this book and, and make of it you know, a range of things. In this case, mediated by what's the instructor in a class going to make of it. We all, I'm sure we've all had the experience where the professor will say, I'm going to use this book, but I'm going to ignore that chapter. And I actually like this way of doing it better, right? So it's not like the book is the only speaker or the only contributor to that, to that process either. So I find them really fascinating. And, and uh, MTW, uh, Misner, Thorne, Wheeler, is is really 
it's a favorite of mine because it was so just insane. It was just in, it was seen as insane upon when it hit the the shelves and and made the shelves groan, as you say. It's, uh-huh. You know, six pounds, thirteen hundred pages. It's a source of gravitation. That's not only the topic; it actually can can warp the gravitational field itself. Was part of one of the jokes at the time. And part of what made it so crazy is that it didn't it, it upset the kind of expectations or the genres for the scientific textbook. Even it was remarked upon even in its day as as this is something different. The reviewers were quick to say this is you can't ignore it. It's sort of uh, uh, in many ways sort of enchanting and lyrical, almost poetic. Uh, the the senior author at the time, John Wheeler, was already well known in the physics community by, by that point for having kind of a, a special skill for metaphors and, and a kind of lilting language. Sometimes people thought it, it, it was too much. Others really began to to admire it. Uh, on top of it, it has a kind of, the, the chapters are not to be read in linear order. The authors are very explicit. There's a kind of looping structure they recommend, read this, then jump here. And with such a long book, they actually give what they call dependency statements in the margins. So if you've just landed on on page you know, 812, dear reader, then you should know that the next three pages depend on this section and that section, but not sorry, this other section. They had Because it was such a nonlinear, it was meant to be read in such a looping or nonlinear way that they had these kind of pointers literally in the margins to reinforce the fact that they don't expect people to sit down at page one and emerge 1,300 pages later. It has these boxes, which would come to be more common, especially for for books aimed at uh, less advanced students. This was a book aimed at PhD students at the time. They would interrupt the flow of a given chapter with with boxes, some of which were kind of um, uh, amusing anecdotes or little short historical studies or descriptions of, of particular experiments, or there was a kind of grab bag of, of lovely, short, little kind of moments to interrupt the flow of a given chapter. And then they had multiple typefaces, and not like one or two or three, but, you know, eight or nine. And this was this was before the kind of fancy, you know, um, typesetting tools that, that we so many of us have access to uh, today, whether it's, you know, the varieties of, of, uh, of LaTeX typesetting or, or whatever else. This was being set more or less by hand, or at least using much earlier methods in the early 1970s, and the the authors were so worried uh, because they'd given such loving care to the to the variety of typefaces. Use this font for this symbol throughout, and use a different font for the neighboring symbol. That when it came time to contemplate foreign language translations, they said, "Don't even try to retypeset this. Literally, just cut out." And by that, at that point, that meant cut and paste, like literally cut the page, not electronically, with cut and paste as a metaphor. Literally cut out the equations from the English language edition and paste them onto your onto your uh, foreign language edition because you'll never get it right otherwise. It was that wow. level of attention to the to the physicality, uh, not just to the kind of weight of the page, but of the layout of the of the typefaces, of the arrows, of the line types for boxes. This was you know a kind of extraordinary labor um, a labor of love for three authors for an entire army of you know kind of designers at the original publisher. And so that already fascinates me. The, the kind of how do you how do you try to convey these esoteric ideas with a variety of of textual means, graphic and words and equations. And what also fascinated me was that this book, again, even in its time, was inspiring very different notions of what it was all about, even before the book was published. So the authors, as as we know from some of their own notes uh, from their own planning sessions, which uh, which. Uh, uh, Professor Kip Thorne very kindly shared with me and others I was able to find in John Wheeler's archives, that the authors said, we are going to write a textbook for graduate students taking general relativity. That was unambiguous. They want to write a really good textbook for PhD students. 
Uh, and yet, uh, the, just before the book was about to come out, after many years of working on it with the publishers, the publisher was still convinced this was not a, a pedagogical text at all. It was a reference work to be sold only directly to libraries. You'd kind of look up stuff, but treat it you, not a book you'd, you'd, you'd read, let alone one you'd ever teach from. And so the authors had this shock, literally right on the eve of first publication. We said, the publisher doesn't even know this is meant for students. Can you imagine after all their attention to typefaces and, and you know, pedagogical structure? And so is this you know, a, a kind of reference manual or a textbook uh, is already one big, one big unknown or at least a, a point of contention? Then, the, then the, the authors prevail. The publisher decides to bring out a, a paperback edition of this hulking thing, uh, hoping that'll keep it within the price range for students. And then a different ast- astonishing ha- thing happens. The book starts getting reviewed, not only in the usual physics journals, as you would expect for, for new, you know, important new textbooks. It starts getting reviewed in national newspapers, in local newspapers, as like this weird, cool book that everyone should read. There's a non-mathematically trained uh, reviewer in a local paper, I think it was San Antonio area in Texas, who, who devoted a, a like a long, almost half-page newspaper review to this esoteric book aimed at PhD students in physics, saying, I don't have any physics background, but I'm 200 pages in, and I think it's fascinating. I can't put it down. <laughs> that's, how does that happen, right? Uh, that it's, yeah. it's like, it's the thing you should know about. It's the hot thing this season. And getting a kind of glowing popular attention that any novelist, you know, would, would dream of. So this book, like people don't know quite what to make of it, or, or rather they make many things of it and with it. And that just, that seems to, to like supersize the, a, a, a general theme that's fascinated me for a long time, that these books, that any book can be, can be subject to many kinds of uses and interpretations and readings. And here's a kind of extreme example where even in the author's own moment by moment, let alone with the passage of decades, people just didn't quite know what to make of this thing, even as, you know, as the sales were, were flourishing and copies were flying off, off the shelf. So I just find that, you know, a great example of of how books are these really fascinating, but also kind of complicated objects in the world. And we do different mm-hmm. things with them. Uh, and I just, uh, and, and again, going back to something we, we mentioned earlier, there's, there's a kind of source base with which to try to reconstruct that because the authors uh, wrote stuff down. Many of the authors um, saved the stuff. Uh, and so we can kind of try to piece back together in this kind of detective story way, you know, that some of the twists and turns behind the scenes. Incredible. I, I have gone back in my own memory after reading this chapter and recall now that I had my own uh, experience seeing this book for the first time. I was in uh, the library of St. John's College in Oxford, where I was doing my graduate study in history of science and browsing the shelves for, you know, physics books. I mean, these Oxford libraries have incredible resources um, that I'd never seen in any other library. And I'm, I'm, I'm walking through the physics textbooks and it's all, it's all very normal. And I see this spine that, that <laughs> I, I thought my eyes were deceiving me. And I pick up this book, which I now realize in retrospect was um, gravitation. I, th- I think to myself, who could possibly be the audience for this thing? Uh, you know, what, what kind of lunatic would, uh, would even, <laughs> would even attempt to work through this book. So it, it was, it was very enjoyable for me to, to then, to then read, um, your writing about it and, and, and see that indeed it is truly insane, uh, exactly, uh, in the way that you describe and something that I really found fascinating. Um, you speak as well about the Feynman, uh, lectures on physics in the book, mm-hmm. um, is, is just how important 
this training of physicists are and the role of these books in kind of codifying in some way this this knowledge and passing it to the next generation because you know this running theme throughout 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 the book of of this community of physics how it kind of imparts its knowledge to the to the to the next generation i found that super um interesting in particular to uh, to read about uh, well, I, I'm so glad, Matthew, because it is again. It's a it's a it's a theme that that is very dear to my heart. There's another chapter in the book. Well, the, the same one where I guess I briefly talk about the Feynman lectures, another beloved you know, trio of books still in print and on many, many, many physicist shelves around the world. In that same chapter, I talk about other textbooks on quantum mechanics that were released around the same time as each other uh, in the late 1940s, and yet had very different fates. Were, were treated quite differently by the community. And again. The, the books become kind of markers of, of sometimes very rapidly, very violently changing assumptions or priorities. So the books, again, these kinds of intentional documents, uh, the books written for a very particular kind of purpose, can help us kind of map some changing currents, intellectual currents to be sure, but also some of these changing institutional um, political shifts. Uh, what does it mean to be training physicists early in the Cold War and how are assumptions about that changing? So again, the books to an historian, the books can become very, very telling as kind of markers of change, even when that's beyond what the authors themselves thought they were they were doing as well. So I, again, as a tool for historians, the textbooks I, I find really um, fascinating as well. I'd like to change gears a little bit and ask about one particular passage that that went by very quickly in the book. It was a blink and you'll miss it. Uh, one line that really stood out to me and I found very fascinating and I found myself thinking about it weeks after um, or probably days after uh, I originally read it. Um, it comes while you're talking about uh, the Manhattan Project. Um, Leslie Groves is the military director of the project and he commissioned um, this Smythe Report, uh, mm-hmm. which was the kind of this publicly available government document that explained how the uh, atomic bomb was built and, and what was happening in Los Alamos and around the country during during the preceding years, in the wake of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, once that was made pub- once that was made known to the American public, surely there would be questions about what was happening this whole time. So he commissioned they specifically commissioned this report to be written on that theme, and that uh, report t- talks a great deal about physics and physicists. Um, but you cite some research saying that this is because the American government and military felt safe or comfortable talking about physics because physics wasn't really um, the determining factor in their ability to build the bomb. They could speak openly about physics because just knowing physics wasn't enough to build a nuclear weapon. That required metallurgy and material science and chemical engineering and manufacturing and so much more. Those latter things were actually the uh, technical challenges that needed to be solved in the Manhattan Project, um, this kind of idea um, of, of the physicists being the main people behind the bomb was kind of reinforced by Richard Rhodes's book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, which largely is a book about physicists. But um, I couldn't help but think, reading um, th- this part in your book, you know, what really is the role of the physicist? Is it Has it been overstated? Um, you talk about how, you know, Robert Oppenheimer was on the cover of Time magazine and there was some quote that, you know, no dinner party is complete without a physicist. Um, is it true that the physicists are really that important uh, when maybe it's all of this other knowledge uh, that is actually the crucial thing involved in, in this instance, the production of nuclear weapons? How should we be thinking about physics then? 
It's it, uh, thank you, Matthew. It's it's another uh, one of my favorite kind of um, ironic twists in terms of the history. So so this particular point about how the Manhattan Project itself uh, again uh, was represented or 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 a, what meanings were attributed to it by sort of broad members of the U.S. public, but also sometimes more importantly, military strategists, politicians, you know, pundits and and, and journalists. Uh, that my work for their builds very directly was deeply inspired by a fascinating dissertation by uh, a colleague, uh, Rebecca Press Schwartz, who, who wrote about this, who really brought this to my own attention, I think to many of our attention, that the way that the Manhattan Pro- Project was documented for, for very particular reasons, as you mentioned, uh, General Leslie Groves recognized in real time that there'd better be a kind of accounting uh, literally an accounting for how you know billions of dollars during wartime had been spent. Uh, and so he appointed, he asked um, the nuclear physicist uh, Henry DeWolf Smythe, who was a, a, a nuclear physicist at Princeton, not to come work on the bomb per se, on the bomb project, but rather to work as a real-time kind of um, scribe to go around to many, many of the Manhattan Project sites. There were dozens across North America, certainly not just Los Alamos or the other better-known ones. And be able to write down in a way that could be cleared in advance and released, shared with both officials and the broader public uh, when needed. So you wouldn't have to first start trying to write an account and make sure you weren't releasing dangerous information, all that. So it was meant to be kind of pre-cleared accounting of of what we now know as the Manhattan Project. Uh, And again, as Rebecca uh, found and and other uh, friends and colleagues, Alex Wellerstein and Michael Gordon and Peter Gallus and others have have written a lot about this as well. And I certainly uh, draw much on their work that the rules that they drew up kind of uh, in real time about the information that would be safe to put into this Smythe report really ironically kind of boost the, the what appears to be the, the, the central importance of theoretical physics in particular, not just physics, but even theoretical physics, boosts it at the expense of the things that they were super careful not to let out, the things they thought were actually much too dangerous uh, to just write about kind of openly. And so it looks like, uh, so in fact, their, their rules even say things like the Smythe Report can only include things that are already well known in the scientific community, had already been, say, openly published and, and you couldn't put that genie back in the bottle, or in their words, have no real bearing on the development <laughs> of the weapons. And so what qualified for that? Well, a lot of quantum mechanics in particular. Uh, this sort of the notion that slow neutrons, because of a quantum mechanical effect, would have uh, a different way of of, of causing a different rate of causing certain interactions than fast neutrons. That sounds very heady. That sounds like oh, that's the linchpin. And in fact, that was um, you know that was figured out pretty early on. What was uh, so much more carefully guarded was you know uh, how, how much of these rare materials do you really need? How purified do you have to make them? How do you actually separate isotopes of uranium successfully? How do you stop plutonium reactors from self-poisoning and ruining the whole thing? How do you assemble these chunks of highly explosive material sufficiently quickly? I mean, the the real um, circuitry for timing circuits that have to have unprecedented accuracy, as you say, the metallurgy for handling some very unusual materials. How do you separate these these uh, horribly noxious poisonous gases, uranium hexafluoride, which is eating through some of the gaskets that the engineers first tried to use in these uh, city block long processing plants? That's the stuff they said, you better not let that out, right? So let's go talk about slow neutrons and something very basic about a kind of heavy nucleus splitting in two and releasing more neutrons. Precisely because pe- the people who are going to know that already know that. 
And only knowing that is just radically insufficient to, to pose a threat. So what, what's the unintended consequence of that? It looks very, in this official government report, which, which is republished and sells out, literally becomes a, a bestseller for, for months and months on the bestseller list. It looks like physicists built the bomb. Now, of course, physics and physicists were very important in these efforts and their contributions. They weren't doing nothing, but they were part of a very new kind of team. And that's something that I think Peter Gallison in particular has really emphasized in, in a bunch of his work. And I, I think it's exactly right. That one of the real legacies of the Second World War in terms of this, kind, this new mode of uh, scientific, let's say, research and development was intentionally building multidisciplinary teams that had to work together. So it was not just that the physicists went off and came back and told the chemists what to do. It was absolutely not that. It was that you had to have these integrated teams with multiple kinds of expertise coming together in real time. That was pretty unusual. Uh, and they were and people were very intentional about it, trying to build these new forms of institutions at the time behind the fence, as they say, highly classified, both for the radar project headquartered mostly at MIT. Uh, and likewise for the for the sprawling Manhattan Project, that what was really new was was ways to try to forge working relationships among people who literally didn't know how to talk with each other in technical ways before then. So the the kind of mixture of expertise and channeling of different ways of framing problems that was quite new and very impactful. And many people tried to capture that after the war back at universities and new government laboratories and all that. Uh, and yet that was not really emphasized at all. And instead, it looked like these, you know, brainiac physicists led, you know, almost to a person by this theoretical physicist, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, they built the bomb, they're the ones who got it done in the language of the day. And so it's a remarkable irony. And again, I want to give enormous credit to Rebecca Press Schwartz for that very far seeing thesis she wrote uh, a few years ago, that helped me and, and many of my colleagues dig, dig around into this as well. So you can look at the official report. You can look at the press releases that were derivative of the report. You can look at broader and changing press coverage, uh, congressional testimony, and so on. And you see the impact of this was was really, you know, a, again one of these ironies, one of these twists of history, where it looked very much like the nation suddenly needed, at all costs, make more physicists and make them right away. Once the post-war period turned into a cold war when it looked like we might need to make another rapid Manhattan Project style effort now vis-a-vis -vis concerns about uh, competition with the Soviet Union. It looked like, oh, we know what to do. Get a lot of physicists and give them as much money as you can right. and make sure you have unlimited numbers of physicists trained and at the ready. And that was simply um, not at all how the Manhattan Project itself or the radar project had actually unfolded just a few years earlier. And so the result of that, I suppose, was what you call a, a physics bubble. You have these amazing graphs, I believe, that come from Alex Wellerstein's work, where you can just see the this explosion um, starting in the 50s, but then the 60s, and especially in the 70s as the, the Cold War kind of heats up, I suppose. Um, cool. Well, they're, they're just a very a very quick clarification. A Alex, uh, who is a very dear friend, actually, he, Alex made the plots, but that was based on my, my own work in the, in the oh, various reports. So, I, <laughs> not to take away from Alex, who's a terrific uh, colleague and friend. But no, they're, no, they're, I, I, his name was in the caption. That's why. That's right. That's right. Because because he's, uh, among other um, manifest number of skills, he was very good at making those plots uh, look <laughs> pretty for me. But no, that's right. So I was, I was very interested in, in this kind of counting exercise, which really just became a, a kind of um, 
high priority, almost at times kind of hysterical concern among many in many corners in American higher education, certainly in uh, in certain government panels, uh, and really was taken up as a kind of truism among many, many pundits and journalists, as well as uh, kind of policymakers, that what the nation, what the United States, in their estimation, needed most of all was many more physicists with seemingly unlimited resources, not to work on weapons directly. That was really not the argument, but rather to be trained with the kind of fanciest tools available so their skills are sharp. Let them study whatever they want, whatever esoteric, unapplied, kind of, you know, irrelevant to daily life kind of topics they want, but so that we'll know who they are, we know how to find, they're already on our payroll. And if the world situation changes, we could mobilize them for a focused, you know, weapons project in a hurry. So the idea was we, not that we'll make tens of thousands of new bomb makers. We'll make tens of thousands of potential, potential bomb makers. And in the meantime, make more and more of them because who knows when, when the geopolitical situation will call for it. And what I loved about that is, I mean, there's all these running themes throughout this book, but also throughout your work uh, in general is that the, your previous book, uh, your previous trade uh, popular book, How the Hippies Saved Physics, picks up exactly on this theme that this physics bubble led to all of these people who were had PhDs in physics or were trained in physics. But then as the job market contracted, many of them had nothing to do. So they did what everyone else did. If you were a young person in the late 60s or, or 70s and you uh, moved to Big Sur um, or the Esalen <laughs> Institute and you uh, became a hippie. It's fascinating. <laughs> That's right. And so again, the, the direction of our research questions is not separate from the world in which we pursue them. That's, a, that's maybe the overarching <laughs> lesson right. of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have so many more questions and there is uh, so much more in this book to discuss. Um, we've, we've barely scratched the surface. Maybe I will ask one final question in closing, uh, which is um, once again about a book, but it's about the book you've uh, written and your process, maybe a bit behind the scenes. This book was compiled um, in, in, in some part from articles that you'd written from various, in various sources over the years, various uh, magazines and websites. At what point did you decide that you wanted to compile these into their own uh, kind of standalone um, book? And in addition, um, what was it like to write about your own physics research alongside some of the historical developments that we've been speaking about today? Well, yeah, no, I, I, thank you. That's a, that's a fascinating uh, series of questions. It's fun, fun to think about. So, Many of the essays in, in uh, that that appear as chapters in the book were written, uh, you know, some years ago, not <clears throat> super long ago, but in the order of 10, 10 years or maybe twelve years for some. Some of them were quite recent, uh, um, and almost all of them I had written at the time as kind of one-offs. I mean, I I, I had you know a short essay I wanted to say about a theme or a topic or an event. The essay genre was was still pretty new to me, uh, and I find it really fascinating. I, I had learned or and gotten practice at least. Uh, in how to write a kind of monograph where you hope the reader will start on page one and hopefully follow you toward page 300 or sometimes 400, where you have, you know, one argument on spooling uh, in a kind of <clears throat> archway. Um, and, 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 I, and, that's, and that's an important way to write. And, and there's a reason historians still write uh, books in that way. And I hope we will continue for a very long time to do that. But that's not the only way to try to, to engage multiple kinds of readers um, not all of whom will read 400 pages on relativity, I've learned, or on quantum theory for that matter. Um, and so there are ways of trying to engage kind of 
let's say, heterogeneous audiences, some working physicists, some curious, you know, um, scientists who aren't in physics, other people who, who are not in, in science or, or academia at all, but are curious about, you know, black holes and, and all these uh, wonderful, weird things we get to study. So what, what's, what does the genre of, this, of the essay afford a writer that the kind of single author 400-page monograph does not and vice versa? And so I was really interested in the form of the essay. There are many writers you know, whose work I just deeply admire who aren't writing about science at all, but who are kind of masters of this, the kind of 2,000 or 3,000 word essay. We can really, that's long enough to say something. It's not just a kind of blog post, but it has a, it, it calls for a different tone, a different expectation of kind of evidence and reasoning and argument uh, compared to a 400 page book. And so I was just fascinated by the by the genre of the, of the, of the essay. And so I was writing a bunch of these and having um, a lot of fun writing them and, and working with extraordinarily patient uh, and helpful editors at a range of, of publications. But like I said, I was writing them as, as kind of one-offs. And then after a, a bunch of these, uh, a, a large number, I said, you know, there are some kind of common themes that I seem to keep coming back to, not surprisingly themes that I also had been exploring in say my, uh, you know, kind of more, more traditional monograph um, publications. And that maybe there's a way to try to make arguments and introduce, you know, kind of broader or mixed audiences to a range of questions and topics with this more essayistic construction, but by threading them together. So basically, it's a, as I say in the book, is a kind of kaleidoscopic view. So there's still arguments and, and kind of theses that run through and stitch these chapters and sections together, but it's it's a little more... Um, by by concatenation rather than by an explicit, you know, in this chapter, I will prove to you that, that kind of more familiar construction. And so I found it really fun all over again to revisit some essays that I'd really been very proud of and that I had a lot of fun writing the first time. It gave me an opportunity to update them, to revise them. Every single one of them in the book has been revised compared to their original version, some more heavily than others, to merge some together uh, into a, a one essay, even in the earlier versions, it had been kind of uh, different pieces that come out in different places. So it was a chance to revisit material that I enjoyed, but also with a with a new scale in mind, a kind of fractal or kaleidoscopic model that there still could be takeaways for readers to 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 consider or to to sit with, um, but kind of gestured at or put together um, from this collection of of essays that could talk with each other, but not. Um, not in the kind of uniformity of a, of a typical monograph. And I found that actually challenging. It was hard to get the order right. It was hard to know which essays just didn't belong in. Some are, are favorite essays of mine that aren't in the book because they just didn't really advance this the structure uh, that I was trying to put together. So it was, it was its own kind of fun challenge. It was a different kind of kind of jigsaw puzzle than what I'd had before. And that was for me very exciting. And, and I got some great help and input from a, a, a number of trusted readers and so, you know, it was, it was a fun process to try to put it together. And what about in terms of writing about your own work? You are very unique uh, among the historians of science because you are also a scientist. What, what was that like to do those kind of two types of writing side by side? That, that's true. And that was also something that, that was newer for me and, and pretty fun. So in my, histori- my previous historical monographs, you know, I had really... Uh, kept, so to speak, the two aspects of my work pretty separate. Mm-hmm. Um, my historical work was was uh, informed by some of my research in physics and vice versa, um, but the historical argument was not kind of dependent on, on, 
on my physics research per se. And so here, you know, the uh, the the form of the essay can 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 make can make a kind of constructive use of the of the casual observation or anecdote in a way that the more formal monograph might not. And so it was an opening to say, I'm, I'm really interested, for example, in the history of scientific training, as we've talked about, in the history of writing and using textbooks, in the history of pursuing strange questions at the heart of quantum theory. Uh, and I've also been very lucky to be able to engage with those questions in a, in a contemporary physics research format as well. And so what happens if I if I if I bring some of the of my own experience, modest experience, not a memoir or, or tell-all, but a little bit that comes from the kind of lived experience that I've been so lucky to get to to experience with my own colleagues and students in recent times, does that motivate some of the questions that that uh, that I want to dig into as an historian? Does that uh, bring on board a reader who might not? Care very much about you know the 1920s per se, but could maybe be motivated to to dig into a bit more in the 1920s based on something that's happening now or, or something like that. So I found that helpful as a again as a kind of um, not a device, but as a as a, a technique to try to engage multiple kinds of readers. It was also frankly very fun. I mean, I've had some enormous adventures, literally adventures, going to the you know the the top of a mountain in, in, on the island of La Palma in the Canary Islands, which has a, a world-class astronomical observatory with some of the largest optical telescopes on the planet. Uh, it's an amazing facility. And I got to go there with members of a collaboration that I was just enormously proud to get to, to help put together and, and work with. You know, PhD students and postdocs and, and very senior faculty and sort of everything in between. And we were posing questions that, were, that would have been recognizable to Einstein and Bohr, that were not limited to what Einstein and Bohr had at their own disposal, but are clearly, again, part of that legacy of that intergenerational kind of unfolding and layered discussion. We still want to know. We still don't have the answers to all the questions that they themselves were grappling with nearly 100 years earlier. And so in that sense, it, it did seem to tie into this theme of the, of the kind of embedding of the work in the world, of the uncertainty and the twists and turns of what will even count as a question for different generations. So in that sense, it felt a little more appropriate or natural to bring in some of my own experiences, even as I try to then talk about sort of how we got from there to here. Uh, and it was also a way to, frankly, try to honor uh, some of the, the the essential work and insights that that I've benefited from, from you know my my students and, and teachers and, and colleagues, to again, reinforce it then as now, this is necessarily a group effort. It's a communal effort uh, and and a collaborative one. And I've gotten to enjoy that and benefit from it uh, in a very direct way, uh, much as I, even as I try to, to kind of elucidate some of those mechanics or dynamics from earlier times. Wonderful. Well, I, I, I'm going to pause there because we could, we could do this all day, but this, this book has so much, we've barely scratched the surface. We've probably discussed maybe 10% of the of the total number of essays that are in here. There's a wonderful one on the pedagogy of quantum mechanics, the discovery of gravitational waves, the uh, superconducting supercollider, which was this proposed um, particle accelerator that was absolutely gigantic, almost unfathomably gigantic, <laughs> that, that never was uh, came to fruition, Large Hadron Collider, uh, reflections on Stephen Hawking, uh, and so much more. I, I definitely highly recommend uh, quantum legacies, whether you are already well-versed in physics or even if you don't know much about the subject, the essay structure um, makes it really easy to, to find exactly uh, maybe what you're looking for or all of it. 
Um, so David Kaiser, thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. And uh, yeah, this has been really wonderful. Well, thank you. It was really a pleasure. I, I really appreciate it. And I hope, uh, hope readers will enjoy the book. Thanks again. All right. 